does a non-art person make sense of the art world? Colin Cotter will be here to talk about four new books that look into contemporary painting. What I like to do is think of the contemporary scene, the gallery scene, as being a source of discovery. So I can't know ahead of time what I'm going to see, and I like that part of it. Why does art lead so often to crime? Jonathan Keats will talk about two new books, The Art of the Con and Master Thieves. Certainly, the way in which online venues impersonalize the process by which art is bought and sold opens up all sorts of opportunities for new kinds of crime. Alexander Alter will tell us what's going on in the publishing world. Greg Coles has bestseller news. And we'll let readers and listeners ask a few questions for us editors here at the Book Review. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Holland Cotter joins us now. He is an art critic for The Times, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2009, and a reviewer this week of uh, several books about contemporary art. Hi, Holland. Hi. Thanks so much for for joining us. We gave you four books to look at and review. I'm going to just go quickly through the titles, and then we can talk a little bit about them generally and go into specifics. Um, The first book is called The Contemporaries, Travels in the 21st Century Art World by Roger White. The Paintings That Revolutionized Art by Prestel, the publisher, Painting Now by Suzanne Hudson, and Painting Beyond Pollock by Morgan Falconer. Some of these books are uh, primarily visual, but let's talk about the first one, The Contemporaries, because uh, that's something a little bit different from the rest. What is this book, The Contemporaries Travels in the 21st Century Art World? Well, it's it's basically a firsthand account by an artist. Roger White is a, a painter who uh, sh- shows here in New York and teaches uh, in art schools. And it's a firsthand account of his experience now in art schools, uh, participating in classes and so forth. So he's talking about sort of how, how artists are educated, how they become artists, what that system is like today. The first half of the book is basically about that, yeah. And the second half? The second half is um, about individual artists who uh, he thinks are interesting to look at for as models, I take it anyway, as models for young artists to take a look at, how to, how to proceed with their careers, how to shape a career that's not entirely market-bound, sort of fr- fringe artists who've been around for a while. When we were putting together this first art-themed issue of the book review, uh, one of the things that we had in mind was um, – let's say, a regular reader of the book review who doesn't really know much about the art world, if they're going to read something about it and kind of get an introduction to it, that we would offer some of that. And I think you do that a lot in your essay, kind of talking about um, how the contemporary art world has evolved and how it's different from when you started out as a critic. What was the art scene like in New York when you began? Much, much, much smaller than it is now. It was concentrated primarily in one part of town, which is Soho at that time, and then it was newly concentrated in Soho. It had only started there about uh, maybe a decade before I arrived in the early 70s. And then there was Uptown. But that was it. There was no Brooklyn art scene the way there is now. The Lower East Side was not an art scene. Uh, the numbers of galleries was much smaller. It was a much more concentrated situation. How has that changed your your job as an art critic for The Times? Back then, I could, I could go to almost all the galleries in Soho in a single Saturday pretty easily. Today, I can... Get only a fraction. See only a fraction of the art that's being shown uh, across the city. And so, do you whip through, a, you know, a different neighborhood or borough? I, I try to focus that way, just for convenience' sake. You know, you, uh, it makes sense. And um, you know, I, I like to linger over art. Personally, that's my preference, and it's very hard to do that now. You've got to kind of hit and miss and 
hit and run rather and uh yeah that's the method now how much of what you do is go into galleries and how much is it looking at the big museum exhibits it's about half and half. Uh, the museum exhibitions are, are easier because there are far fewer of them. And I know ahead of time what the schedule is going to be and what I'm going to be looking at. What I like to do is think of the contemporary scene, the gallery scene, as being a source of discovery. So I can't know ahead of time what I'm going to see, and I like that part of it. So the more time I can spend, uh, devote to that, the, the more um, I feel I'm learning, and also it keeps the job interesting. And is the artwork now on show in New York, has it become more global in its concerns and the artists that are, that are showing there? Oh, it has, yeah. There's no question about that. It's, that's changed tremendously over the past 25 or 30 years. I mean, the multi- multiculturalism in the 80s started that, and it's continuing. Uh, it's still limited, I think. It's very hard, for example, for a gallery devoted to South Asian art or African art, contemporary art, to survive in the city. Do you find, when you're looking at um, the books that you reviewed here and in general at books about art, that what's going on in contemporary art is accurately reflected in the books that discuss them? Well, there are a lot of books coming out, too. That's the, the uh, they, they pour out of the publishing houses now. So quite a bit is, is actually covered in these books. And uh, I think the most interesting books are coming out of the um, academic presses rather than the, the mainstream presses. Let's see if we have any. We don't have any academic no, presses in don't. this particular pile. There are others uh, reviewed um, elsewhere in the issue. But I think one of the things that makes it hard for sort of non-art people, um, but people who are interested in art, but, you know, not conversant in everything that's going on to understand the contemporary scene is that when you take your art history the 20th century or before, you have movements that are sort of readily comprehensible, the Impressionists, the Post-Impressionists, the German Expressionists. Are there movements like that today, Is it, or is it more fragmented? It's much more fragmented today. I think those divisions tend to uh, fall along lines of nationality now. You're looking at African artists, you're looking at South American artists, uh, and that's the way the market sort of divides things up. When did that break down? Like when did, It seems like there was abstract expressionism and then people sort of don't know what the next ism is after that. Yeah, I think in the 1980s that all started to break down a bit. Um, it, it seems to me there were, there were just so many currents happening simultaneously. It's almost like art schools have broken down into uh, very narrow professional categories. You can pursue uh, very specific uh, kind of pinpoint fine uh, degrees now that you were never able to do before. And I think the art world has become the same, where there's just so much going on that it's no longer possible to really package things the way it once was. Like, what are those degrees? Do people get an art degree specializing in performance art or in video installations? How does that work? What are the other specialties? That well, are... within, within that, you can you can specialize in certain kinds of performance, and you can specialize in certain kinds of photography. And uh, there's a whole field now called social practice, which is a big envelope that can hold many, many small things. What is social practice? Well, social practice is basically an art in which you're not producing objects, you're producing events, you're producing, um, uh, you're doing things. It's performance art, but out in society rather than uh, in a, a studio or a gallery or a museum situation. You go out into the world and you cook for people, you help people build things, you develop skills, um, you could be developing carpentry skills, and then you put those toward a certain end and you call that end art. You, that's how you perceive it, and so it is. So this is really pushing the boundaries of what 
what is considered art. Are there big names out there for anyone who's just now wondering, hmm, I'd like to look at what some of that looks like, that they could go online and Google and... There's a guy named Ritgrit Tiravanij, who's um, American, um, born in Thailand. His specialty uh, began in the 1990s where he, he cooked meals for friends in galleries, and anybody could come and have those meals, and um, that was his art. Was it Thai food? It was Thai food. Well, then there you go. <laughs> that sounds, our, that sounds uh, appealing in and of itself. One of the books that you reviewed here is called uh, Painting Now um, by Suzanne Hudson. What's going on in painting specifically? There's also another book, Painting Beyond Pollock. So we're looking at contemporary painting. Are there movements within painting? Well, they're very, they're very uh, general movements in the sense that there's that abstraction as a, as a field, as a phenomenon, has uh, had a, a, a significant revival. And then there's figurative painting, which uh, came in in the 1980s and then kind of blossomed in the 1990s. So those are the, the, the general breakdowns. And then there are also formal Developments, I would say, uh, where a painting and sculpture becomes a very two difficult um, categories to separate. They could be quite similar and joined. So all of that's coming into the mix now. When you look at um, contemporary painting, and um, I think for again many non-art people, it will sort of break down into abstraction or figurative or realistic painting. Are the divisions in painting similar when you look at it globally? Like if you look at what's going on in contemporary China, for example, is what they're doing now with painting, does it reflect sort of different similar tendencies to what's going on in the U.S.? Or does it, do you really need to kind of look at it as this is this is very specific to China, this is specific to, um, I don't know, Ethiopia, this is specific to Eastern Europe? If artists choose to draw on them, there are things that are certainly um, nationally, I guess you could say, specific or culturally specific. But in general, um, painting is just a wide open field now. Everybody has been looking at everybody else. Or, or I should say that the rest of the world has been looking at the West for a long time. So, And I think the West has not paid enough attention to what people are doing outside of it. Your specific expertise, one of them has been in Asian art. Um, where do you feel is the most exciting um, contemporary art being produced within Asia? That's very hard to say. I, mean, I, I think there's a lot of wonderful things. China is doing um, extraordinary things, but so is India. Uh, there's a huge art market now. And one of the interesting phenomenon is that, you know, the time was that China, China's Chinese artists and Indian artists and from elsewhere would look toward New York and perhaps London uh, for their for models and markets, but they don't need to do that anymore. They have their own markets now. They no longer need to uh, gear their work to a Western market. Has the center of art shifted from New York, or is it just that there are more than you know multiple centers? There are multiple centers now. New York is no longer the the uh, the be all and the end all. Has the contemporary art world become more professionalized? Oh, tremendously so. How is that apparent to the average viewer? Well, at one point, I think, um, you know, you went to art school. I, I'm not sure you, people took art school as, as quite as a professional school. It was someplace where you went and you could spend dedicated time to doing what you wanted to do. And that was set aside for that reason. But now it's very, very professionalized. And um, you are prepared to present yourself to the world as an artist in a way that I think you weren't perhaps 30 years ago. 
I don't know if it's among these books. If it is, great, and let us know. But um, perhaps it's another book. If you were, a again, someone coming to this from outside the art world and just wanting to get a sense of the contemporary art scene, are there books that you would recommend above others as being sort of a good primer? You know, it changes so fast. And I looked at some some books in, in the process of reading Roger White's book. I also went back and looked at some that were written, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And... They were, for their moment, actually even then a bit late coming onto the scene. Things had already changed by the time those books were published. So I'm not sure there's any one book now that really captures the uh, the zeitgeist accurately. It sounds like there are so many zeitgeists that it would be hard for one book to, to, are, to do that. That's true. I'm, I'm thinking simply of New York, but uh, even in New York there are many zeitgeists. Do you travel to Asia uh, in your role as an art yes. critic for the Times, are there books that give you a sense of if someone were interested in, for example, what's going on in contemporary Chinese art? You know, what I would do is get on the internet, really, to check that out. Hey, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> this is a book crowd. I know, I know. <laughs> Don't say but, just Google it. <laughs> no, but I'm afraid there is no one book that, uh, you know, Barbara Pollock did a book a few years ago, two, maybe three years ago, two, called um, An Art Critic in the... Wild, Wild East, or I think was the title. And that still is actually a, a very good book and a very entertaining book to read. However, it was done three years or four years ago, and, and time has moved on. Well, now it's art history. Now it's art history. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Holland Cotter, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. The books, again, that Holland Cotter reviews this week in the book review are The Contemporaries by Roger White, The Paintings That Revolutionized Art, Painting Now by Suzanne Hudson, and Painting Beyond Pollock by Morgan Falconer. Alexandra Alter is here with news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What are we going to talk about? So an interesting discussion was sparked this week by an article in New York Magazine about whether book publishers should start fact-checking more vigorously. And this is a debate that seems to come up every time there's a new scandal over a fabricated memoir or a factually inaccurate book. And there have been a couple recently. Who are um, the bad guys? The bad guys this year are uh, Wednesday Martin, the author of The Primates of Park Avenue, which is a memoir-slash-anthropological study of Upper East Side trophy wives. After an article in the New York Post pointed out a bunch of holes in the story and questions some of the author's anecdotes, like the now infamous one about wives who were getting performance-based bonuses from their husband. Simon & Schuster said it would add a disclaimer to the text, saying essentially that some details were altered to protect people's privacy. The other nonfiction book to come under fire is Alice Goffman's On the Run, which was a very celebrated account of the lives of low-income African-American men in Philadelphia and their encounters with police. She was actually on the podcast last year talking about it. Right. And um, just a few weeks ago, this sort of debate blew up over the book again. A law professor suggested that the author might have participated in committing a felony while she was immersed in the community and was going along on these rides, which were on one occasion she was riding along with some men who had set out to avenge the murder of one of their friends. And so there was some debate about how she had portrayed her you know, participation in this event. I think also there's been questioning about the, the sort of factual uh, exactly. nature of the book. She burned all of her notes there after those doing the book. Absolutely. So. It's interesting because it's often this only after a major scandal erupts, you know, that publishers will take action and start trying to ferret out errors in an author's work, like, you know, with 
Jonah Lehrer's plagiarism and quote fabrication or James Frey's fabricated memoir. And, you know, some nonfiction writers will pay for their own fact checkers to avoid mistakes, but that can cost thousands of dollars. But there is one new nonfiction imprint, Tim Duggan Books, which is starting to include fact checking as a routine part of its editorial process, just like copy editing and proofreading. Tim Duggan's the editor, and it's a new imprint under Crown. It's going to publish about 10 books of nonfiction a year. Uh, one of the first books that the imprint is going to release is Objective Troy, which is by a New York Times reporter, Scott Shane, about a drone killing of a top terrorist operative. So it does seem like there's some movement towards a more rigorous fact-checking culture in publishing, although this is just one new small imprint. It's interesting because I had lunch with Tim earlier this week, and he mentioned that this was something he wanted to do uh, when he started his imprint uh, a year ago. And I think it's going to be a real draw for authors. I think it's a great pitch that they can take to authors and agents when they're starting this imprint to say, look, we're providing this service that your authors could really use. Um, on the other hand, you know, other major publishers say that doing this on a grand scale would be a huge expense and a logistical challenge. But they all live kind of in fear that one of these books, you know, that something could slip by them and one of their authors will be exposed as a fraud. In the New York Magazine article, there was a great quote from an anonymous editor who said that, you know, in publishing, it's like working for the TSA, quote, you don't want to be the guy who let the terrorist in. Don't want to let that happen. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Keats joins us now. Jonathan is the author of Forged, Why Fakes Are the Great Art of Our Age. And this week, he reviews two new books in the art issue of the book review. The first is Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist by Stephen Kurgian. And then The Art of the Con by Anthony Amore, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Two art books, I would say the most obvious link between the two, I think, is that the author of The Art of the Con, Anthony Amore, is currently the head of security at the Isabel Gardner Museum, which is the subject of Master Thieves. But he was not the director at the time of the 1990 art theft, correct? That is correct. He was brought in to rectify the security situation there, so to speak. All right. Let's talk about what happened on March 18th, 1990 at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. It was not a good night for the museum business, I guess you could say. Uh, There were two men who were dressed up as Boston police, actually wearing private security uniforms, who managed to talk their way into the museum and to then gag the two security guards who were not particularly resistant. One of them was apparently, generally speaking, high on marijuana, and the other one had a habit of practicing trombone during the off hours. So they were not what you might say the most uh, diligent of security personnel, and they didn't have any idea what to do. Uh, They were confronted by a couple policemen. They let them in. They were put in the basement in duct tape, and these two thieves then proceeded to, in what has got to be one of the least surgical strikes of all time, tore paintings off the wall, sliced them out of their frames, and stole whatever they could. And nobody can make sense of what they took and what they left behind. That might be the most interesting part of 
the entire larger puzzle of how it is that they have not been caught and how these paintings have not been recovered. That is to say that the paintings that were stolen include a very important Rembrandt, the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, yet they left behind Titian's Rape of Europa, which is probably the most important and valuable painting in their collection. And they also took some very odd things, including a Chinese vase, an ancient Chinese vase that probably could have been pawned for a couple thousand dollars at most. They managed to take everything out of the museum, put it into a car, and then drove off into history. You quote an exchange between the intruders and the and the senior guard um, that I'm just going to regurgitate here because it's so good. This is a robbery, the intruders announced. Don't give us any problems and you won't get hurt. The senior guard was quick to respond. Don't worry, he said. They don't pay me enough to get hurt. What else was not as it should have been with regard to the... Um, security at the Gardner Museum at the time. And, and and was that typical of other major art museums in the United States, or was this an aberration? I think that the Gardner was in a particularly bad place because of the will left by Isabella Stewart Gardner, which had as one of the requirements that everything remain as it was when it was her own. In other words, security really couldn't be upgraded to the extent that everyone realized that it needed to be. There were many ways in which one could very easily break in. There was a a man who would routinely spend the night in there, as a matter of fact, who is interviewed by uh, Kirkjian, who basically seems to have potentially played a role, potentially not, but certainly seems to have had an intimate knowledge of absolutely everything within the museum. And My sense from reading this book and from reading about the case more broadly is that a lot of people within the crime world knew a lot about the inner workings of the museum. And there was the problem that there just was not enough money to be able to put in the required changes that probably could have been, even given the nature of the will, uh, to have isolated where security was. In other words, not to have them at a desk that was effectively accessible to anyone who entered, including those two thieves, but rather to have it someplace remote. Some very easy fixes that would have been apparently too pricey because the museum was incapable of raising the funds to be able to make these basic changes. So it also should be said that at the time, museum security in general was perhaps not what it could have been. Most museums were easy to break into in one way or another. They had weaknesses, but the museums generally had a sense that no one would ever steal in the way that someone would uh, break into a bank. We should give away the ending, at least in the real world, which is that this is an unsolved crime. Um, but does the author, Stephen uh, Kirchian, does he come up with some likely theories, or does he have one theory that he um, focuses on in this book? The book is, on the one hand, encyclopedic. He was on the case from the very beginning as a reporter for the Boston Globe and has been reporting the case ever since. This book is the single best source probably that we're ever going to have, aside from the fact that it doesn't have an ending telling you who done it. 
but the book also is making a case for an unexplored theory, or at least a theory that the FBI seems not to have taken on in any serious way, that at the time of the theft, it was widely believed within crime circles that if you wanted to ease somebody's federal time, you just basically needed to rob a museum and then ransom the artwork. That seems to be based on his investigation. The only little problem being that the thieves who stole the work in order to get one of the mobsters out of jail had no idea that it was going to become such a huge case and that they were essentially not going to be able to do anything with the work or they were they were afraid to do so i guess would be what he would claim in 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 his theory and so the one who was responsible according to Kirkjian got murdered and the paintings have been missing ever since it's not a perfect theory. Nevertheless, a very interesting theory, which he he makes a very compelling argument. I want to bring in the second book and talk a little bit generally about both um, the second book being The Art of the Con, um, the most notorious fakes, frauds, and forgeries in the art world by Anthony Amore. It would seem that art crime in general may have gotten much more difficult given the globalization of the art market and um, the fact that these images can be readily seen by anyone online. It's not like people don't know what these things look like and who owns them in general. Is that true? I think that it's become more difficult in certain respects and perhaps new opportunities have opened up. One of the most interesting cases that Amore discusses in his book is the case of Eli Sakai, who in the 1990s had what has got to be the best scam I've ever come across, or certainly one of the top 10. He would buy second-rate Impressionist paintings at auction in New York, big prominent auctions, Christie's, Sotheby's, those sorts of auctions, and would then have them meticulously copied in his workshop. He would take the copies and pair them with the original paperwork as well as the auction record. And then in Japan would place those paintings, place the fakes with all of the original documentation, that is to say, giving these fakes real provenance. We should add that the copyists were Chinese. That is true. So yes, it, it was a, it was a global scam. In art. You are right. So yes, so so he would then be able to sell in Japan and then wait for a time and then he could sell the original paintings in New York based on the fact that they were in fact authentic. They could be reauthenticated very easily. And so he was relying on the fact that there just was not a lot of communication globally speaking within the art world and therefore the same painting could be sold twice in two different places. And ultimately what brought him down was the fact that the Japanese buyer of one of the paintings by Gauguin happened to be selling at the same time that the original painting came up for auction, one of them at Christie's, the other one at Sotheby's. And so it was quite obvious to everybody that something was wrong, and ultimately it was discovered that he was behind it. That was the end of that. So there's a great case of what you're talking about. 
But at the same time, you have certainly the way in which eBay and other online venues impersonalize the process by which art is bought and sold, and often make it so that the art is is bought and sold without the work itself ever being seen, opens up all sorts of opportunities for new kinds of crime. What other new kinds of crime um, in terms of art are out there, and does Amore discuss them in, in his book? Well, Amore doesn't really discuss much of anything in his book that you wouldn't come across from reading the newspaper, except to bring up a few cases that were not really big enough or interesting enough for there to be much newspaper coverage. So I don't think that his book really is going to be the best source to go to to find what has happened of late that is of interest. The most interesting case, I think, in recent years is one that he does not cover at all. He does mention the name of the forger, Mark Landis, but he does not ever give any time to discussing the case. Landis was, Landis is still around. Landis apparently is a rather lonely man living in the South who really would like to have some friends. And so he started to fake work by rather insignificant artists such as Marie-Laurent Saint, not with a great deal of expertise, often taking a color Xerox and painting on top of it, for instance. And then he would go and he would donate this work to various museums. And the museums were delighted to have work given to them and would uh, treat him as a great friend. And he would get that boost to his ego that he desperately needed. I don't know, and nobody has ever really been able to figure out what it is that motivated him, but there certainly was no financial interest. It went on for years, and even where some museums had it figured out, others somehow would still fall for the scam where he would present himself in one or another guise. It shows how fixated we are on money, any sort of case of art forgery, we assume must be a case of greed. And he was able to exploit this blind spot, in a sense, where these curators didn't really look at it with the same sort of scrutiny that they did when there was money involved. And this says a lot about connoisseurship, I think, and about art appreciation and and the value that we put on work. That would be where things have gotten interesting of late. All right, the dark arts. Jonathan Keats, thank you so much. Thank you. The books, again, uh, that Jonathan reviews this week in the book review are Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist by Stephen Kirchian, and The Art of the Con, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World by Anthony Amore. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Well, you know, I always start uh, with the hardcover side of things and never look at the trade paperback list. But this week, I feel obligated to tell you that there is a new number one bestseller on the trade paperback list. That book, of course, is Gray 
by E.L. James. It's uh, kind of a follow-up to her Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, telling the same story as Fifty Shades of Grey, but from the man's perspective, the perspective of Christian Grey, dominant billionaire. You may remember that Marilyn Robinson did something similar. After uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Gilead, she went back and told the same story from the perspective of another character. Probably not the inspiration for E.L. James. No, but I, <laughs> I, I knew those two authors had something in common. All right, what else is new on hardcover? Over on the hardcover side of things, there are a few new titles. Um, starting at number eight, Danielle Steele has a new novel out called Country, new at number eight. Then at number six, the Nantucket novelist Ellen Hildebrand has a novel called The Rumor, uh, her latest Nantucket novel. Then right above The Rumor at number five, Brad Meltzer has a thriller called The President's Shadow. It's the third novel in his Culper Ring series. Then new at number four, another series. This is uh, continuing Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan Jr. series, uh, even though Tom Clancy died a couple of years ago. Grant Blackwood has continued the series. Uh, The latest book is Tom Clancy's Under Fire, new at number four. Very familiar names. What's on nonfiction? On nonfiction, I wanted to point out that Wednesday Martin's Primates of Park Avenue, uh, which had been doing very well in its first couple of weeks, has plummeted this week uh, from number two last week all the way down to number 13. This is the fictional slash nonfictional slash memoir slash study question mark of the Upper East Side Mothers. (laughs) Mothers and mores, yes. And in nonfiction. There are some new nonfiction titles as well. Down at number 16, the journalist, the former New York Times journalist, Tim Weiner, has a book called One Man Against the World, uh, which looks at the Nixon presidency. Then moving all the way up to number seven, uh, the comic filmmaker Judd Apatow, who was a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is at number seven with his new book, Sick in the Head, his interviews with comedians going back over the decades. And the last new title on the list, Displacing Primates of Park Avenue at number two, is a book called Modern Romance by uh, the actor and comedian Aziz Ansari, uh, who was one of the stars of Parks and Recreation. It's sort of a sociological study of dating in the digital age, uh, written with an actual sociologist, the NYU professor Eric Kleinenberg. I went to college with one of them. Guess which? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to guess not Aziz. Not Aziz. (laughs) He's actually the third Parks and Rec star to have a current bestseller right now, along with Amy Poehler, uh, whose Yes, Please spent half a year on the hardcover nonfiction list and is currently number two on the humor list. And then also Nick Offerman uh, is still hanging on to the hardcover nonfiction list down at number 15 with his second book, Gumption. Well, isn't that what all actors wanted, to be cast on Parks and Recreation so that one day they could have a New York Times bestselling book? Exactly right. All right. I'm going to take advantage of Greg's presence here um, to talk about a couple of questions that have come in from our listeners, followers, readers. Here are a couple from Twitter, and both of them are about the kinds of assignments we make. And since Greg, in addition to his bestseller column, is also an editor here uh, who helps assign books, I thought I would have him help answer these questions. Um, The first one is in from Pietro Alar. This came in via Twitter. When you are reviewing a first-time author, do you choose specific reviewers, those with more sensitivity to the newly published, Greg? 
Huh, that's an interesting question. In other words, do we have certain reviewers who specialize in first novels or first-time authors? The answer to that is really no. When I am looking to assign a book, I'm I'm just looking for who a good fit for that book would be based on the subject matter or the style or some compatibility um, that, that makes me think this reviewer would have something interesting, a, a good reaction to the book. I will sometimes pitch it to the reviewer as a first book um, so that they know what they're getting into. And I've had reviewers say, well, I'll look at it, but if I don't like it, I'm not going to review it because I don't want to do that to a first-time author. So there are some reviewers who are especially sensitive to that. Especially big-time and big-established names often feel like they, they, right. they're loath to sort of hit someone just coming onto the literary scene. That, that's exactly right. Um, but we don't take it into special consideration um, our, ourselves when we make the assignment. All right. Uh, here's another question, actually. Also from Pietro Alar, you are the <laughs> double winner this week. But uh, both of these questions I thought were very interesting um, in terms of the assigning of books for review. Um, some of your reviewers seem to wield a hatchet in their reviews. Do you match reviewer to book to achieve an end? I'm going to start off answering that one. Um, and then, Greg, if you want to weigh in. But actually, no, uh, we don't ever <laughs> want um, someone to just knock a book down. Um, that would really be what we call a setup review. Um, and we try to avoid that. The way we think of it here is that um, we welcome readers to disagree with our reviews, but we don't want them to distrust them. And if an assignment has been made where there is an obvious agenda that seems to be at work, then that makes the, the review itself that sort of takes the value away from from the argument of the review. For example, we won't give a right-wing book to someone who is an outspoken left-wing politico um, because it's, it's very predictable what they're going to do with that kind of book. And we do try to make sure that uh, in the assigning that someone doesn't have a conflict of interest, whether that mean um, on the positive side a shared agent or um, a shared editor or publisher, or on the opposite, someone who maybe was on a panel with someone four years ago and they got into a terrible fight, um, or someone who's notoriously bad-mouthed another writer on his blog, that kind of thing. That said, it is true that there are reviewers we know are more severe in their judgments than other reviewers who, um, who just have a higher standard for uh, excellence. Um, and, Our highly or, critical critics. Yeah, um, people with less tolerance um, for the the vast range of what's out there. Sometimes those reviewers are great fun, and we know when we go to them uh, that they have those standards, but we're not. We're always hoping that they'll love a book, um, even if we know that they often don't. Some of those reviewers are well-known as negative reviewers. The poetry reviewer, William Logan, for instance, makes no bones. He just had an article in Partisan magazine um, recently where he kind of said outright, criticism requires a critic. You, you need to be negative if uh, at times, although you're not uh, looking to do it on purpose. We know when we go to William Logan uh, that he will often write with a sharp edge for that reason, we might hesitate to give him a first book of poetry by a, a young poet just starting out for exactly the reason that we discussed in response to the prior question. Uh, we, we may be more likely to go to him on 
you know, T.S. Eliot's letters or, you know, or a biography of Robert Frost. Someone dead and not likely to be hurt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Neatly wrapping together both of Pietro Alar's questions next week. uh, If you would like your question um, answered and you are not Pietro Alar, uh, please feel free to tweet it to us at NY Times Books on Twitter or send us an email at books at nytimes.com. Thanks, Greg, for helping me answer those questions. Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.